0: Good morning. Thanks so much for, uh, to Ian for being here with us this morning. It's a real special treat. And uh, I want to say thank you to Chris for taking care of church. I was gone the last two Sundays and I heard, I want to thank you guys. You really took care of my family really well because when my, my wife and I got back, my in laws said they felt like rock stars when they came to church. Everybody was talking to them. You helped out with the kids, some of you. And so, really, thank you so much for that. My wife and I, we went away for two weeks and we have a nine, a seven year old, and a four year old. And so, you don't really get away very often when you We've got three kids like that, and so uh, I'm really grateful to my in-laws. My wife and I we went to China, and we got to do the Great Wall, and we did the Terracotta Warriors, and it went really awesome. Although hiking the Great Wall, I, I just thought it would be like some steps, and then we would just go walk along this undulating thing in the mountains. It was like the worst workout I've ever done. It was probably like a thousand steps. I looked like I jumped out of a swimming pool by the time I got back. The majority of the group couldn't even do it, and so. It's a good thing I work out, otherwise I never would have made it to the top. But I did, and I drank two Gatorades on the way down. So it was really good, but I'm really glad to be back, and this morning I'm starting a new series on worship, and it's really a series that I've had in my mind for a really, really long time. In fact, I had put together a series of notes, and I don't do this all the time, but I had put together a series of notes back in 2013, and I had kind of brainstormed kind of up a direction for a series on worship, and so this series really goes back a long time, you know, Uh, I heard a a talk once where Louis Giglio, who's a famous preacher, he talked about how sermons are, his sermon series are kind of like a baby being born, you know, at one time it gets conceived and you just never know how long it's going to take until the birth happens. So for me, this one was like a four-year gestation process. So for all you women, just be glad you're not pregnant for like four years, you know, It's nice. Uh, But this one is on worship. You know, for those of you who are new to the church, worship is really a controversial subject, isn't it? It's controversial for all kinds of reasons, but they mainly revolve around form, method, and really style. There's never a lot of controversy within the church about who are you worshiping. You never really get controversy about like, you know, pastor, I don't think we should be worshiping Zeus. I never do stuff like that. But there's all kinds of controversy surrounding how we worship God. And so this series really, I don't always do this, but this series is really going to skirt all that. I'm not going to talk anything about form or method or style. And the, the purpose of this series is not to justify what we do in, as far as our worship and our form, method, and style. It's not going to be talking about modern trends in worship, method, in method style, and form. This series has... Two purposes. The first purpose is just going to take me one week today, and I want to give a biblical and theological understanding of what worship is. And then over the next five weeks, I just want to survey all of the Bible and how people have worshiped God over the the process from creation until new creation. We're going to look at what worship looked like before the fall, after the fall, before Christ, after Christ and what it will look like one day when Christ finally returns and makes all things right. We're going to do it in five additional weeks after this week, but today we start with worship. And really the question is, what is it? And to come to the best answer for this, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me and turn to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 8, is a passage of Scripture in which the prophet Isaiah is commissioned to do his ministry, his work. But the commissioning of Isaiah revolves around a time when God God revealed himself to Isaiah in a way that is very powerful and very dramatic, and it teaches us an awful lot about what it means to worship God. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim. Each was with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory." Now at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched his mouth. Or he touched my mouth and said, see, this is touch your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin has been atoned for. When I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? I replied, here I am, send me. In this little passage, we can come to the conclusion of what the most basic aspect of worship is. In fact, I'm going to give you, this definition is so basic, it's only three words, uh, and it requires some explanation, and I'm going to develop it as we go. But at its core, this little text gives us an idea of what worship is. And in fact, we can apply it not just to God, we can apply it more broadly. For this text teaches us that worship is a response to revelation. It is responding to revelation. Notice that this definition does not even demand that God is a part of it, although certainly God should be a part of any true form of worship. But at its core, worship is simply responding to revelation. It is responding to revelation. And the reason that this definition is so critical or important is, even if you're new to the church world, we all, there's a basic principle that I've noticed in life, and it is this, we all have to worship something. Everybody worships something. You will notice in life that worship is simply answering and asking the question, asking and answering the question, what gives my life worth or value? What gives my life worth or value? What makes all of this worth living? And all kinds of people answer this question in different ways, don't they? Response to revelation. What gives my life value? For some of us, it is, uh, it is money. And so at times, there are people who they will do nothing but pursue money. And, you know, there comes a point in their life when they realize, like, how important money is, and maybe they realize they're good at making money, and so they pursue it, and they pursue it, and they pursue it. But how many stories have we have heard of people who have, Achieve the greatest pinnacles of money, but they're still never happy. Some people pursue and they value and worship rational thinking and intelligence. Um, and they think there is nothing higher than our own minds and what we can come to. And they'll cite and they'll look at all the things that we have achieved with our rational mind. Uh, on the way home from China, I love to watch movies. I, I, I get to watch like one a week, if that's most of the times. But um, on the airplane, it's like 12, 13 hours. And so all I do is watch movies. I watch four on the way there and five on the way back. <laughs> and if that makes me not cool, then I'm not cool. But I actually think it does the opposite, you see. But um, so I watched, on the way home, I watched this movie called Gifted, which I'd really been wanting to see. And it's about this little girl. She's a first grader and she's like this math genius. And um, the whole story is about how there's a custody battle between this grandma who thinks this little girl who's six and is a math genius should be working in these think tanks and helping to solve these millennium problems, which I didn't even know existed, but now I do, and um, how the uncle thinks that she should be able to live a somewhat normal life, as normal of a life as any six-year-old genius that knows more about math than any of us in this room can And so the reason he thinks this, though, in the movie is because this little girl's mom was also a math genius. And this girl's mom had solved one of those millennium problems and found it to be completely unsatisfying, and she actually took her life, and she left her daughter. It was her wish that the daughter would be raised by her uncle, who repairs boats, and really is not a math guy, and just gives her a normal life where she gets to play with kids on the playground. Because our intelligence... Although I'm not proposing we shut it off, that would be kind of stupid, wouldn't it? But our intelligence is is as important and as awesome as it is, and uh, it is not enough to give us meaning and value in life. Some of us pursue and worship beauty or love. And, uh, you know, we even talk about when we first met our spouses, we may even use this language, you know, she was a revelation, that's how I felt when I first met my wife. And I, I'm not just using this in a corny way. I can remember it, although she doesn't remember it. We've had this discussion. I was in college, and uh, I was there early because I was a soccer player. And she was early because she was an RA. So she was, like, mature, and I was just a sports player. And um, <laughs> at the college I was at, we had these bro-sisses, and there was this early bro sis event between... Uh, our brother and sister floors for the or people who were on campus early. And there was only about 10 of us. And I can so distinctly remember her coming in and thinking, man, she is awesome. You know, a response to Revelation. I didn't worship her. Still don't. But, you know, some people worship beauty, but beauty is fleeting, you know. Some people worship all kinds of different things, but this morning, as we kind of launch this series, what I want to propose to you is that there is nothing in the world that is worthy of our worship or is even safe to worship besides God himself. It's almost as if the only one who has the ability to accept and to be worship and fully satisfy us without leaving us empty and feeling lost and disillusioned is God himself. And to help you understand why that's the case, I want to explain to you exactly what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to unpack and unravel this little definition that worship is responding to revelation. That little three-word definition really has two core concepts, revelation and response. And so worship first is always based on revelation. It's based on information, and the revelation that we have of God is given for us in a very concise and summative way in Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 3. Take a look at it with me. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3. It is the language of the angels as they are proclaiming to Isaiah the knowledge of who God is in this throne room where God is present. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty the whole earth is full of his glory. Two concepts, two core concepts as it relates to the revelation of what we know about God. First, the first thing that we know about God is that God is holy, that the Lord is holy, the holiness of the Lord. The angels declare it, in fact, they declare it three times, holy, holy, holy. The whole purpose of this was to like, this is really, really, really holy, you know, really, really, really important. Now, what is holy? The word holy simply means to be unique, to be set apart, to be distinct. It is a word that evokes the image of to be completely other than. And there's lots of things in life that are holy. There are lots of things that can be described as holy. Um, The Bible uses the language of holiness in a bunch of different ways. But perhaps the way to understand holy the best is to understand its opposite. The opposite of holy would be to be profane. Profane just simply means to treat something as if it is common. When we profane the name of God, we just use it in a way that we use any other language in a way that it is not special. Uh, My wife and I, we have this plate. We were given it seven years ago when Harrison was born. in church, we have a really good friend, Norley Bailey, and when our kid was born, when Harrison was born, we called Norley, and she came, and she picked up Walton, and she took care of him until my parents could come and watch Walton so that Sarah and I could be with the new baby, Harrison. That was seven years ago, and when we finally got out of the hospital and we came home, Norley Bailey came, Bailey came over to see our new little baby, Harrison, and she brought us over a little cheesecake. I remember this part really well. And... <laughs> It was on a little plate that said happy birthday on it because it was Harrison's birthday, you know? And we have saved that little plate. We didn't save the cheesecake. We ate that. But um, (laughs) we have saved that little plate. And you know what we do? It's just one little plate that says happy birthday. But that plate, and Sarah is very detailed about this, That little plate is only used five times a year in our household, or it is only supposed to be used five times a year. On each of our birthdays, after our birthday meal, we get to choose whatever our birthday dessert is. And whoever is the birthday boy or girl, if it's Sarah, they get to put their little piece of cake, pie, tart. For me, it's always fruit tarts. I love fruit tarts. And put our little piece of dessert on this little happy birthday cake, plate, happy birthday plate. Because that plate is unique. It is set apart. It is distinct. In a very real sense, that plate is holy. Now, just yesterday, and I promise I just did this. I didn't do this for the purpose of my sermon. I did this because I was running out of smaller plates. But just yesterday, I was making eggs and sausage, and we had had people over the night before, and I was running low on those littler plates. You know, I had plenty of dinner plates left, but I I didn't want a big plate. I was trying to limit my portions. You know, it's easier to do so on a small plate. So, I needed, I had four small plates, and the only small plate that was left was that little happy birthday plate. And I put it out, and my wife said, You know, that's not how it's supposed to be. She immediately noticed. (laughs) Because, in a very real sense, that is profaning that plate, it is using it in a way that it is not meant to be used. Now, that's what holiness is all about to be set apart, to be distinct. The Bible uses holiness for all kinds of things. In fact, in the Bible, Jerusalem the holy, is called the holy city. Within Jerusalem, there was the temple called the holy temple because it was special within the city of Jerusalem. Within the temple, there was a place called the holiest of holies. And it was an inner room within the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's very presence was said to dwell. And in that place, only the priest, the high priest could enter only once a year and only on the day of atonement. But the Bible goes beyond that. There's all kinds of things that are referred to in the Bible as holy. The Bible refers to the Sabbath as holy, that we're not to do normal things on the Sabbath. The Bible refers to um, instruments that were used in worship in the temple as holy, bowls and incense bowls and uh, things that you would light the, fire, the candles with, holy. The vestments or the, the articles of clothing the priest wore, they were to be consecrated, they were to be Holy. The Bible in 1 Peter chapter 2, in fact, calls us holy. Everybody who is a Christian is a holy priesthood, people who are meant to relay the knowledge and the joy of who God is. All kinds of things are referred to in the Bible as holy. But the thing that is referred to the most as holy is God himself. And when the Bible refers to God as holy, it is doing something completely unique completely holy, completely set apart. When the Bible refers to the God as God holy, it is saying that God is completely unique from anything else that exists, that there is nothing like him that exists on this universe, or if there was any other universe, there would be nothing like him there either. For God is completely and utterly unique. Perhaps, you were going through a hard time when you were a child and you had a loving parent who came to you and said something like this. You are special. There is only one you. There's only one Bill Baumbach. You had a loving mom or dad who uh, cares about you. And what they said was actually true. There is no one like you. There's only one Bill Bombback, and there's only one, insert all of your names. You are completely unique and no one can be you. But you are unique in the same way that a snowflake is unique, I'm told. If we were to take a snowflake and put it under a microscope, we would find that they're all slightly different, but they're all still snowflakes. You see? No matter how smart you were or are, if you were even if you were a valid Victorian in your high school, you suddenly went to you know, college and found out that you're in college with a bunch of other valid Victorians. If you were awesome and dominated the sports circuit, in high school, in all your other high schools, and you were the man, you get to college and find out that you're playing amongst a bunch of other people who dominated their high school circuits and maybe better than you. If you were really, really, really beautiful, you find out that although there's an Audrey Hepburn, there's also a Grace Kelly. And if you, I used old women because I'd feel like that would get me in less trouble, you see? And <laughs> they're already dead, I think. I'm not completely stupid, you see? And if you really idolize and become the next Bill Gates, there's always a Steve Jobs, you see? These people are important. They are unique. They are special. But they are special in a way that there are other people that are special and unique like them. Although there may only be one of them, there's other ones that can do similar stuff. There's an Andy Stanley, but there's also a Timothy Keller. And if that didn't make sense to you, it's because those are preachers. But God is not holy like a snowflake is holy. There's a bunch of snowflakes and there's a bunch of us and we all bring something unique to the table. God is holy in a way that there is nothing that is like him in its nature at all. He is completely set apart, completely distinct and completely other than everything else that exists. He is not the best or the most important thing amongst a bunch of other things like him. He is in a spot by himself, for he is God. And there is only one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's confusing, isn't it? God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. And that God is completely other and completely distinct than anything else that exists. In what ways is God holy? To answer this question, we would go to the attributes of God. And God has all kinds of attributes, and I'm not going to go over them all. In theology, you learn that there are two kinds of attributes of God. There are his communicable attributes and then his incommunicable attributes. The communicable attributes are the attributes of God, like love. You can be loving, not loving like God is, but an attribute that you share with God because you are made in his image, and he made you after his likeness. But God is different than us in nature, and so God... Has some attributes, the incommunicable attributes, that you don't have anything like him. There is a God who exists, and that God is one, and that God, for example, is all knowing. He knows everything there is to know. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. That God is all powerful. There is nothing that he cannot do. This God is all present. There is nowhere where he is not. He is eternal. There is no time when he was not. When it comes to God's holiness, his uniqueness, while you and I may be holy in certain ways, God is holy in a way that is completely unlike the ways we are holy. He is one of a kind in his very nature and there is nothing like him. Alan Ross, in his book, Recalling the Hope of Glory, says holiness is not one of many descriptions of God. It is the summary description of all that God is and all that he is known to be in contrast to all of creation. He is completely unique and he is completely set apart. And all of those other attributes fall under his holiness. But there is another aspect that the angels, the seraphim, reveal in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Not only is God holy, but look at the text with me in verse 3, he is glorious. He is glorious. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod. And it literally translated, it just means heavy. It means substantial. You know, I've noticed uh, come around Christmas time, if you're you're the age of my boys it really doesn't matter what's in those boxes. When they're wrapped, all that matters is, did I get the heaviest in the biggest box, right? And there may be some disappointment on Christmas morning, but that's all that really matters. Sometimes I think you could just wrap a rock in a really large box, you know, a heavy rock, and they'd be like, this is the best present ever. There may be slight disappointment on opening, but they'd have like 25 awesome days of excitement and anticipation. I think this Hebrew word, is kind of conveying a similar thing in a primitive way. God is glorious, meaning he is heavy. He is substantial. There is nothing more important than him. Now, glory can refer to anyone. We speak of brides who come down the wedding aisle, and we say, there she is in all of her glory. It's all of her beauty and all of her importance. Everything revolves around her. Uh, most of us have had that moment of glory, even if we're not a bride, you know? Because uh, I remember my wedding day, and not anybody looked at me hardly. It was all eyes on Sarah. That's just the way it works. But all of us get a little bit of moment of sun, or as Jack Black says in Nacho Libre, we all get our shine, you know, time to shine in the sun. I won't imitate him this morning. Uh, don't you want to know what it feels like? <laughs> so, I said I wouldn't, but I just can't help it. <laughs> but uh, we all get our moment. We have our graduation party. A lot of us, where it's all about us. Even if you didn't get one of those, probably your parents threw you a birthday party at one point where like, you're the person receiving presents and you're the person who gets the cake you know, to eat first. Most of us get that moment where we feel important and it is displayed. But what Isaiah is saying is that God is of ultimate glory. His importance is beyond any other importance. And the display of that importance goes beyond anything we can fathom. The psalmist describes it this way in words that are just utterly beautiful. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, it's interesting, personification of nature, as if uh, the mountains and the oceans and the plains and the rivers are displaying and declaring, not just displaying, but declaring how magnificent and wonderful he is. Night after night, nature displays his knowledge, and there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard, and it's true. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world, and in the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a running, rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. God is glorious. Whether we see it or not, everybody sees it. You see? He is glorious. And the evidence is all around us and we can ignore it. And you know, I had a real short discussion with somebody. Why do some people see it and other people don't? I don't know. It's staring us right in the face. And God is of utmost importance. But perhaps... In a, in a room like this, there's got to be some of you who can remember what it was like to live day after day without the knowledge or the appreciation or the understanding of who God is, and then all of a sudden something changed for you, and it was like this light switch, flip switch, and all of a sudden you're in the same world with the same people, same stuff, but all of a sudden you see God. He's revealed himself to you, and everything changes, and you see his glory. And that's what it was like for Isaiah. You see, we all worship something. We look to something to give our lives and our worth to. But it is dangerous and destructive and disillusioning to worship something besides God. Of course we can do it. We can ascribe ultimate value to something besides God which of course is the definition of false worship. There are tons of plenty of good things. I would suggest money, intelligence, beauty, love. They're all good things. I would like all of them to be a part of my life. And I've experienced all of their joy. But when we ascribe ultimate value to something that is of secondary value, it's almost as if that thing cannot even contain what it's meant to contain. I did a little research on this, and I know I'll butcher it because I'm not a science guy, but it's almost like if you had an appliance that is a 220-volt appliance and you try to plug it into a 110-volt electrical outlet, what happens is, from what I've read on the internet, is nothing really happens. You've got this incredible amount of potential and you plug it into something that cannot power it. And so you plug a 220 into a 110 and maybe the lights flicker or maybe nothing happens at all. And all of a sudden the danger comes when you realize the disillusionment that you have pursued something to give your life worth and meaning and value and all of a sudden you realize that money and even romantic love and beauty and rational intelligence cannot conduct what you are meant to experience as it relates to the meaning and purpose of life. And perhaps you've been there, perhaps you've met someone like that. The revelation of God is around us, telling us that God is glorious and that he is holy. And no true worship can occur without a true understanding of who God is. None of us have a complete understanding of who He is, but we can still have a true understanding of who He is. And within the truth, as far as we know it, when we have really come to a place where we understand God, the only natural thing to do is really to respond to that revelation. And that's all that worship is. And this little passage, Isaiah 6, helps us even further. How should we respond to the revelation of God? I can't, there's no place in the Bible where an author reveals to us, here is what worship is, and here's what you do. It never does that. The Bible is full of examples of God revealing himself in both his words and his actions, and it is full of examples of how the people responded. But there's never like a didactic definition of worship where we are told exactly what it is. But what we do see are all kinds of examples of how people responded. And we see four ways that Isaiah responds. They're beautiful, and maybe you'll recognize them in your own story. Isaiah chapter six, verse five, we see the first three. When Isaiah saw the Lord of holiness and glory, his response was fourfold. First, it was fear. It was fear. And you can go around in your life right now and not even understand who God is, and all of a sudden, there may come a point in your life where you didn't understand who he is, and now all of a sudden you do, and you might have a little thought that goes in your head that goes something like this oh my goodness. And that's because I'm in church, I talk like that. And because I'm a pastor, I talk like that outside of church as well. But anyway, oh my goodness. Where it'd be like getting together and you go out and you're on this cruise and you're with the President of the United States, but somehow you live in a bubble and you didn't even realize he's the President of the United States. And so you just talk to him about all your kind of crazy stuff, you know? Talk to him about canning peaches and, you know? And then at the end of the time, you're like, do you realize who you were talking to? And you think, oh my goodness, fear. Because if there really is a God who is exactly who the Bible reveals, a God of ultimate power, knowledge, authority, The only proper response is fear. And we see Isaiah, woe is me, I am ruined. The second response Isaiah has is confession. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst people of unclean lips. The third response he has is adoration. I have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. I have seen the king the Lord Almighty. And his fourth response we see in verse eight is commitment. After understanding who he is, the only natural thing when God says, who will go for me is to say, here I am, send me. That's what worship is. And over these next five weeks, as we look at it, we will be seeing the revelation and the response again and again and how people responded to God Oftentimes, an incomplete knowledge, incomplete revelation, and even we do that today, but we respond to him in fear, in adoration, in confession, in commitment, in the ways that we know how, and we set apart his name as holy and glorious, unique and important. Every time we gather in this room and we sit in these gray chairs, I can tell you that The first and primary thing on Chris and I's mind is how can we reveal the beauty of God as revealed to us through Jesus Christ? And how can we prompt people to respond in the only appropriate way there is to the revelation of Jesus Christ? For that is what we are doing when we worship. When we worship, we are actively responding to the revelation by renewing our commitment to God. Everything we do, is given you and is being done to give you and me an opportunity to understand who he is and to respond to him in an appropriate way. And so over these next five weeks, we're just gonna survey what that looks like. It's not gonna be about a lot about form, style, and method in modern days and trying to justify how we do worship or how the modern church does worship. We are just going to look and remind and refresh us that no matter what the form, the style, or the method, no matter what the music like it is like, no matter what its volume, no matter what the preaching is like, whether it has jokes or no jokes, the idea of the preaching, the music, communion, everything, the prayers, everything that is being done is an opportunity for us to understand who God is and to respond to him in faith. And so over the next five weeks here, we're going to go, I think this is super fun. We're going to look next week at the idea of what was worship like in the Garden of Eden before the fall ever destroyed and corrupted our humanity. In week three, we're going to look at what was worship like after the fall, but before the law was given by Moses. In week four, we're going to look at worship during the period of the law and before Christ. And in week five, we're going to look at how Christ changes everything as it relates to worship. And in week six, we're going to look at how worship will be com- uh, completely perfected when Christ returns in the new heavens, in the new earth. And so this morning, as we close and as we consider what is to come, I invite you to pray the words with me. And if you don't know them, then just listen to them and enjoy their beauty. I invite you to pray the the, the Lord's prayer along with me and to hear as you hear the language and as you speak it out loud, to hear the language of worship. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.